This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to a teaching from our series on the topic of worship. This teaching was recorded live at Eitzhaim Messianic Fellowship. So, welcome. We're going to be starting into a new uh, series, on uh, a new teaching series on the subject of worship. So I want to talk about worship for two main reasons. First of all, this this is an important topic that really gets at the heart of what it means to be a follower of the God of Israel and his Messiah, Yeshua. And second, it's a topic that has been a source of, sadly, conflict and misunderstanding among believers, especially in the last 50 years or so. Uh, this is this is tragic. Um, uh, worship should be something that unites us as believers, right? And any time we see something like this, uh, where um, it's causing division, that can only be uh, the work of the enemy, dividing, taking what is supposed to be good, what is supposed to be holy, what is supposed to unite us, and using it to divide us as his people. So our our goal has to be to recover a biblical understanding of worship. So what I'm wanting to title this is Toward a Messianic Torah Theology of Worship. It's a a bit of a mouthful, and I want to unpack that phrase a little bit here to get at the heart of what we're talking about here. So um, I'm not calling this a Messianic Torah theology of worship. I'm saying it's toward a messianic Torah theology of worship because this is just a start. I'm not even. I'm not going to pretend that we're going to be able to do justice to this, this topic, right? Um, I, I I hope that at least in this series we can start to think about some important aspects of worship together. What worship is, what it means, and and uh, what it means to come together as Yeshua's followers and serve him together, and uh, honor him together. So um, that's why the word toward is at the beginning of this title. Uh, I want to talk about this phrase, Messianic Torah, uh, for just a second here. So I know in, uh, in our circles, there are differences of opinion regarding terminology. What do we call ourselves? You know, some people who are in into this call themselves Messianic. Some people say, "No, it has to be Messianic Jewish." No, it has. No, I'm 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 just part of the Torah movement, or or I'm a Torah believer. Or I, there's there's debates out there, and uh, I've talked about some of this more in more detail in other places. So if you have questions about that, just send me an email, and I can point you in that direction. But but to start, uh, I want to just present a working definition of what I'm going to call the Messianic Torah movement. Um, this is something that I've written about uh, extensively in the past, um, and I can point you there if you want to. So the Messianic Torah movement is a modern, diverse movement or spectrum of movements of individuals and congregations that, number one, believe in Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. Number two, 
observe the commandments of the Torah, specifically a seventh-day Sabbath, the biblical festivals and the dietary laws of Leviticus 11. And three, self-identify as Jewish and or Hebraic through customs, language, and worldview. Um, so the point is that these are kind of uh, the three things that unite us. We're, we're followers of Yeshua. We, uh, we want to follow his Torah. And there's this Jewish or Hebraic element to our faith, right? Um, this is, these, are, these are things that unite us. So as Messianic Torah believers, our study of this topic is going to have some, uh, it's going to be a unique perspective as compared to, say, a conventional uh, Christian take on this topic, or even then a conventional Jewish take on this topic, right? Uh, so when I say conventional Christianity, you know, I'm referring to what most people think of when you say the word Christian, uh, which usually involves going to church on Sunday and does not involve some things that we value, such as keeping Shabbat, keeping the festivals, observing the dietary laws of the Torah and things like that. Uh, so there's going to be some, some little differences, and we'll, we'll go through those as we go. We also have some differences with conventional Judaism, right? Uh, the, what most observant Jewish people follow as their faith, and the biggest thing, obviously, is Yeshua. We are followers of Yeshua, the Messiah. We believe he's the Messiah. We believe he died and rose again, and that he is our salvation, right? And so that's going to set us apart from uh, the stance that most observant Jewish people have. So this puts us in an interesting and sometimes confusing position where we are, in a sense, heirs to traditions or ideas, practices that come from conventional Christianity as well as those that come from conventional Judaism. And we're left trying to sort out how do we, <laughs> how do we deal with all this, right? Where, do we, where is it healthy and important and necessary for us to borrow from either of these two uh, traditions, shall we say? Where is it necessary to break with these traditions and uh, where is it necessary to forge a new path? Are, are we pioneering a new path here? And um, this, these are these are questions that all of us have to deal with as we come to this this realization that Yeshua was and is Jewish. Yeshua kept the Torah. His his apostles kept the Torah. His early followers all kept the Torah. And we're part of this this movement of Jewish and non-Jewish people coming together to follow the Messiah and to obey his commandments. Um, so it can be a confusing place to be at times when we're trying to sort through what, what do we keep from the past and what do we break with from the past and how does all this pertain to what it means to worship God, right? Are we uh, just assuming a definition that we've inherited without really thinking about what that means. So, so when I talk about uh, Messianic Torah theology of worship, I'm grappling with what, what does this even mean? What, like what, what is this going to look like given the ways that uh, we, are, we have a, a bit of a unique perspective? So, so I, I think that our 
position gives us uh, advantage in how we interpret scripture, and I'm sure we all would agree with that, right? We, we see the Bible as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, right? It's all God's word. There is not a disconnect between the old and the new. Um, it's all God's word, and it all works together. So when we're approaching topics like this, the Tanakh, what's commonly called the Old Testament, I'm going to use the word Tanakh, uh, has, has a big role to play in how we uh, understand what God's, what God's word says to us, right? Uh, this is... So, so we, have, we have an appreciation for the Tanakh. We also we appreciate the contributions of uh, Judaism throughout the years, throughout the centuries. Uh, that doesn't mean that we uh, agree with everything, say, that rabbinic Judaism teaches or presents. Uh, we're obviously going to have some, some important differences, and we need to keep those in mind. But, but we appreciate um, the value of healthy Jewish traditions, um, approaching the Bible from a Hebraic mentality rather than a Greek worldview. Um, that'll probably come up uh, later in this series. We'll talk a little bit about that. Understanding the Gospels and the Book of Acts in their first century Jewish context, right? Yeshua didn't come and start a new religion. He came as a Jew. He came practicing the faith that God had uh, laid out for, uh, through the patriarchs and Moses and the prophets and Yeshua came as the king of Israel uh, bringing the redemption that was promised and like I said we value uh, and understand the validity of Torah right so for worship that means that worship in a Torah context is not at odds with what the apostolic scriptures say what the new testament says final uh, word in this phrase toward a messianic torah theology of worship uh, the final word i want to focus on is this word theology <laughs> let's talk about theology for just a second here the word theology is sometimes a bad word in messianic circles um, for whatever reason, it's got a bit of a bad rap in the Messianic Torah movement. Uh, sometimes people talk about theology as, as though it's a bad thing. The point is, there are bad theologies out there. Uh, but theology on its own is neither good or bad, right? It's kind of like philosophy. There are lots of philosophies out there. And philosophy on its own is not good or bad, but there are some philosophies that have what I consider harmful consequences, right? Everybody has theology. Everybody has philosophy, uh, whether you realize it or not. The word theology just means study of God. Uh, it's about knowing God and studying his word, right? Uh, so we can be conscious of the assumptions we have about God and about his word, or they might remain unconscious, and in which case, we have these theologies working in the background and we don't realize it. So it's better, in my opinion, to realize what it is that we're actually thinking about some of these things and uncover some of these assumptions we have 
so that we can allow scripture to inform what we believe about God, what we believe about worship, and what we believe about these things. When it comes to worship, like I said, as Messianic Torah believers, we're sometimes at a bit of a confusing crossroads between conventional Christianity and conventional Judaism. Do we borrow elements from both, none of both, develop new things? How do we, how do we navigate this, right? So what I want to do in this series is explore just some of the questions about what it means in a biblical context for those of us who are in this position. Uh, this is meant to lay a foundation by looking at some important questions. And I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I don't pretend this is going to be exhaustive or anything like that, but hopefully this helps us at least start asking some of the right questions together. So here are some important questions to get us thinking. What is worship? What does it mean to worship God? Is worship personal or corporate? Why, there, why do we gather together as believers to worship? Have you ever thought about how, in some ways, it's kind of weird to get together and sing songs and read old books Right? Like, it, you don't do that in the chess club. <laughs> you don't go to any other social gathering and everyone sits around singing. Someone brings a guitar and then you start reading these old books. And uh, I mean, this is, this is something that is, is unique uh, in, in terms of relating to our faith in, in Yeshua, our faith in the God of Israel. Why, why do we gather together as believers to worship? What's the purpose of a Shabbat service from a biblical perspective? Like, what does it mean to have a Shabbat service? What, what, what does the Bible say about it? Um, how does a traditional synagogue service work? Uh, that's, that's helpful to, you know, if we're comparing, you know, what elements from a traditional synagogue service are helpful? What elements maybe are not helpful? Or are there elements that are helpful or not helpful? These are questions to ask. Uh, what about a traditional Christian service? These, are, these are, are questions to ask. What role should music play in worship? What's the role of music from a biblical perspective? How has the history of the Messianic Jewish movement influenced the formation of common Messianic worship services, whether the structure, the liturgy, you know, we could talk about uh, the different sidurim that are out there, the, the different messianic prayer books that are out there. Where did these come from? What, why are they like this? What's, uh, what's to value in them? What is um, helpful? What's unhelpful? How did we get where we are? How do we, and, and this I think is more the point, how do we ensure that our service, our time worshiping together and on our own is meaningful, honoring Yeshua, and edifying for those who participate. How do we each cultivate a lifestyle of worship in our individual lives? I'm sure there's other questions we could add to this list if we wanted to, but the point is just to get us thinking about um, some of the things that are wrapped up in this word worship, right? Uh, there's both 
corporate worship experiences, private worship experiences. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So in one sense, these are the sorts of questions that leaders need to ask when designing services for corporate worship, right? These are the sorts of questions that can serve as a foundation for practical decisions regarding liturgy, service structure, content, uh, even our choice of worship songs. In a Messianic congregation, whether that's like a, a formal congregation or a home fellowship or, uh, or any time we're gathering for uh, a, a feast or for Shabbat uh, or for prayer, what should that gathering look like and why? These questions are also important for all of us who participate in worship, um, not just for leaders. Uh, in our own personal lives, what is, what is a healthy spirituality? I mean, that's, that's really this, this whole question of worship gets at the heart of what it means to be serving God, right? What is, what, what's, what is that supposed to look like? Um, So, you know, our, a healthy spirituality should involve worship, and that should not just be something that happens once a week, uh, not just when we gather together, but every day, right? This needs to be a daily thing in our lives. Our daily lives should be worship. Okay, so... Sometimes it helps to just ask ourselves the question, why do we do what we do? Um, there are many different ways to answer that question from different angles, but ultimately the answer should always boil down to because of Yeshua, because he is worthy, because the God of Israel is worthy. We do what we do because of him. And if we can't say that, we need to question what we're doing. If it's not because of him, then, then why are we doing it? It has to be about him. Our, our worship has to be about him or it's not worship. Um, to anticipate what we'll talk about in just, a mo in just a moment, if our worship is all about him, that means it's not primarily about what I get out of it, which is something we need to keep in mind when we're trying to talk about what is worship. We can't define it primarily by what I get out of it. It's about him, and the reason is because he is worthy. God is amazing and awesome and wonderful and majestic, and if we could just catch a glimpse of that, we could not help but worship him. So today, um, a big thing I want to do is talk about just defining this word, worship. Uh, in, in future sessions, we're going to look more at some of the, the Hebrew words behind this word worship, even some of the Greek words as well. Uh, but for today, I want to just focus on this English word worship for, for a, a little bit here. And then we're going to look at uh, four passages of scripture that exemplify what I think is at the core of this conversation of what it means to worship God. So, Here's a question. If you were to ask the average believer on the street <laughs> what, what, the, what the word worship means, what would they say? To go to church. To go to church. Yeah. Anything else? Admire greatly. To admire greatly, yeah. 
pray? How about, this is, this is something that, at least in the circles that I grew up in, I would probably have heard if I had asked the question. I think most people would say to sing songs to God, something like that, to, to music, right? There would be something about music in, in their definition. I think, I think for uh, a lot of believers, worship is music, right? Um, I'm going to suggest that it's much more than music in just a second here, but, but it, the way it's commonly used in a lot of circles among believers is, you know, you talk about the time of singing together as a congregation, that's worship, right? So it's, it's often seen as, as one part of a service alongside, uh, say, prayer, reading scripture, a sermon, right? So you, you have worship, and then you have prayer, and then you have reading, and then you have a sermon, right? And so the worship part is the music part. And some people might even say, oh, there's a, you've got worship and you have praise, and those are two different types of music, right? Uh, praise is, is fast and upbeat, and worship is, is slow and intense, right? Um, anyone ever experienced those kinds of definitions before? Uh, that's sometimes, sometimes you hear them expressed that way, right? So, so worship is fast, uh, sorry, worship is slow music, praise is fast music, but they're both music. Um, I think music is a very important part of worship, but there is so much more to worship than just, wor- than just music. For our purposes today, I want to use the term worship to refer to the service, the honor, the adoration, the love that is due only to God, right? So this is different than the kind of honor or love that we show other people, right? Like when you honor your father and mother or, or say when you bow before an earthly ruler, right? That's, that's different. That's not worship. Worship is that which, if rendered to anything or anyone except God, would be idolatry. So, so, so worship is something that is due only to God, this includes both corporate and individual worship, right? So a, a congregational service includes worship music. <laughs> it includes corporate prayer, public scripture reading, and expounding on that scripture. But it also includes personal daily devotions, prayer, Bible reading, singing, music. Our, the way we live our lives, it's all encompassed in worship. We, we ought to cultivate lives of worship, worshipful lives where we're worshiping the Father on a daily basis. It's essential that we each cultivate this thriving personal worship. At the same time, it's essential that our worship not become insular and solely self-focused, right? I think there has to be a balance in our worship between the personal and the corporate. Our worship life is incomplete if it's just me and God, just me on my own with God. I think there's something missing, if that's all it is. There's also something drastically missing if the full sum of our worship is when we come and gather together, and that's it. You can't have 
one without the other. The two fuel each other, right? Cultivating a sense of God's presence in every moment of our lives. The natural result should be that for that to overflow to others in our interactions with them, right? When we gather together on Shabbat, if we spent the whole last week not spending a single moment in God's presence, what's it going to be like when we gather together? It's, 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 there's not going to be anything there, right? But if we all, if we each spend the week immersing ourselves in God's presence, immersing ourselves in worship, cultivating this attitude of worship towards God, then when we come together, that synergy comes together and we're able to worship God together in a powerful way. So I want to zero in on this one definition of worship that I thought was, was actually quite profound. Uh, it's by a, a Christian professor named Gary Parrott, who taught courses on worship at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, he defines worship in a way that I think is insightful, and we're going to look at some passages that exemplify this in just a second. Worship is our response to God's gracious revelation. Worship always involves revelation and response. Revelation and response. God reveals himself, and humans respond to that revelation. Let's, let's take a look at that. Uh, you can turn here if you want, but you might just happen to have this passage memorized. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's what's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it goes on. We could probably fill in the rest of the paragraph there. <laughs> but I want to talk about this, this passage just a little bit. Our attitude, our response, our um, obligation to love God arises as a response to who God is, right? We've got uh, the Shema encapsulates what worship is in, in a nutshell. This, this is like, uh, you know, an amazing summary of, of worship right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There you have the revelation. This is God. This is who he is. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So what, what does that mean, by the way? Uh, when, whenever we say the Shema, in Jewish tradition, uh, an observant Jewish person will say the Shema, uh, well, twice a day for sure. Often it comes up more in a traditional uh, daily prayer siddur in different ways, but uh, at the very, the, the minimum, the halachic minimum is, is twice a day, when you lie down and when you rise up. So in other words, in the evening when you're going to go to bed and in the morning when you get up, you say, you say the Shema. That's, that's the traditional way it's done. And um, the tradition is that when you're saying the Shema, what you are doing is you are accepting God's 
sovereignty. You are declaring that God is king. When we say God is one, we're saying God is king. How, how does that work? Because what this is saying, Adonai Echad, in Hebrew, the point is that he is the only one. He is the only God. You know, this, this Deuteronomy 6.4 is notoriously difficult to translate into English because you could render it so many different ways. Uh, if you have an English Bible open to that verse, uh, like I'm reading from the ESV here, and there's a footnote that gives, uh, you know, three or four other ways you could translate it. So you could say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or th There's other ways we could translate it, right? Um, the reason is because in Hebrew there's no present tense verbs. So where do you put the word is, and, uh, and how do we place the word echad there? But if we understand this verse in connection with that verse we say at the end of the Elenu uh, from Zechariah, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one, right? Um, it starts out, um, Adonai will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. What does that mean? That means he'll be the only God and it will be obvious to everybody. This revelation that the God of Israel is the one true God this is something that is given to Israel, but the rest of the nations don't see it, right? As followers of Yeshua, we acknowledge that the God of Israel is the one true God, but the world around us doesn't, doesn't see it, right? In this age, there's a sense in which God is hidden, but there's coming a day when everyone will see and know that he is the one true God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It will be obvious. What is now not obvious to atheists, it'll be obvious then. There will be no atheists <laughs> in that day. In that day, everyone will know. So when we say the Shema, we're acknowledging that we serve this God now. Th this is the one true God. So there's the revelation. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. This is the one true God. And, so in Hebrew... The word v'ahavta, and you shall love. It has the word and in front of it. There's a connection between these two, right? Why do we love? Because he revealed himself to us. We see who he is, and the logical response of seeing that he is the one true God is to love him. That's, that's the only logical response, is to love him. We love God in response to who he is. Let's go to another passage, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the Aseret HaDevarim, the, the, in Hebrew it's called the Ten Words, right? Um, which is interesting because when we think of commandments, uh, we think, well, a commandment is do this or don't do that. In Hebrew, it's not necessarily a commandment because the first one, at least according to the Jewish reckoning, first one is right here in in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, in Christian enumeration of the Ten Commandments, the, they usually skip over that one and say, well, that's just the prologue, and then the first commandment comes next, you shall have no other gods before me. 
the, the Jewish way of counting the ten words is, no, that's, that's the first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Number two, you shall have no other gods before me. Either way, the point is that the commandments follow upon a revelation of what God has done. Right? God is the one who redeemed us. He is the redeemer. And that knowledge, that revelation, results in a response. What's the logical response to that? To obey him. To, to put him first by having no other gods, to, uh, to not make a graven image, to not take his name in vain, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to honor your father and mother, to not murder, commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness or covet. This, this is the natural response to what God has done for us. So we obey in response to what God has done for us. This is worship, revelation and response. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is a, an example of worship that I think is, is really powerful because it's, uh, it shows not just revelation and response, but it shows the growth of the worshiper. Let's take a look here. Isaiah 6, we'll start reading in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we've got revelation and response, right? This, this amazing revelation of, of God and his holiness, and Isaiah's response I think we would all agree is is um, even though it's, it seems like a, a depressing kind of response, it's a very appropriate response. This is this is I, Isaiah got it right when he saw God's holiness. He realized he's doomed. <laughs> that word there for uh, undone. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm undone. It's like literally, I'm I'm hooched. Right? Like I, I, <laughs> there's no hope for me. I'm doomed. He realizes who he is next to this holy God, that he is a sinful human and God is infinitely holy. That's not where it ends, though. I mean, it, it, it could end there, and that would be legitimate worship, right? We've got this revelation of God, and we've got a, a response that is appropriate to that revelation, although it would be a sad ending. That's not where it ends. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Again, we have revelation and response. And this time the response is different because something has happened. Isaiah, his, his, his unclean lips have been purified. They've been cleansed. And so now his response is, here I am, send me. This revelation of God's holiness results in the realization of sin, the realization of my own failings, and then the revelation of God's grace and mercy in cleansing us results in the response that I am willing to do what you want me to do. I'm willing to go where you want me to go to say what you want me to say. Here am I. Send me. This is worship. We see in this passage, this is, I think this passage is so powerful. We see a series of revelations and responses. And this offers a model for us. We have to come to terms with our own sin in the face of God's holiness. But worship is never done until we also experience his cleansing, his atonement that he has for us through Yeshua. And then, and this I think is, is really fascinating, it ends in action, results in action. Worship is not just an experience that we have that makes us feel great, and then we go back and sit on our leather couches and turn on the TV. It, it motivates us. It gets us up off our couch and gets us out doing something for God. It results in action, results in commission. Okay, there's one last passage I want to look at for today, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some, some implications of this. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, once again, we see revelation and response, right? In, in view of the mercies of God, having, having seen this, this, you know, just how merciful God is, the revelation of God's mercy, what's the logical response? The logical response is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Um, this translation says it's your spiritual Worship, but you could also translate it as it's your logical worship. It's it's the logical thing to do in light of what, in light of this revelation. The the only thing that makes sense is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. There's there's a number of really cool things in in this these verses. Um, one is the language of sacrifice, and this I. I I'm, I hope we'll get to touch on this in a future session in this series, uh, but 
we can look at the sacrificial system in the Torah and it gives us a, a blueprint for worship. This is what worship is, really. Um, the s- sacrificial system, I know in, in our day and age, we, it's very foreign to us, the idea of killing an animal as an act of worship, but, but that's, that's exactly what the sacrificial system is all about. This is worship. Um, and so Paul, Paul, Paul knows this, right? Paul himself, uh, Paul himself offered sacrifices. We read about that in the book of Acts. Um, he was still involved in the temple service uh, when, when he would visit Jerusalem. So there's this element of sacrifice involved. There's also this result. The result is transformation. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind, which enables us to know God's will, to know his good and perfect will, to, to, to obey him, right? To obey his word. So, worship results in renewal. Worship results in action, once again. So, worship involves revelation and response. Worship is our response to God's gracious revelation. And there's some important implications on this that I want to close with. First of all, this means that God is always prior. We do not initiate worship. God is the initiator in all true worship, not us. Worship is a back and forth between us and God. It's something we participate in, but that God started. We never start it. He's the one that started it all. Number two, This also offers a framework for understanding the purpose of a worship service. When we gather together, what do we have? We have, uh, it's a conversation, really, right? We have times when we're praying, we're offering up our praise, our prayers, our petitions to God. And then we also have times where we hear God's word speaking to us. So so a, a worship service consists of us speaking to God and God speaking to us. There is revelation and there's response. And part of the goal of a worship service should be to facilitate the clarity of the revelation, right? To make God's revelation more clear to us so that our response can be more meaningful and heartfelt. Uh, It also offers a structure for the service, right? We have this this uh, conversation going on, this revelation and response. Finally, this idea that worship is revelation and response offers a framework for understanding our personal worship. We love and obey God in response to who he is and what he has done for us. We're responding to what he has already done. The, The prior gracious act of God in revealing himself. Uh, And in our lives, we love because he first loved us, right? We're not the ones who started this whole thing. Yeshua says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, right? We're we're not the ones who came up with the great idea that, hey, let's follow God. (laughs) He, He had to kick in and 
drag us out of the mud and get us on our feet so that we can so that we can serve him and our and our response to his grace the only logical response is worship to offer ourselves to him let's close with a word of prayer father thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us thank you so much that you have given us so much grace and mercy in redeeming us in rescuing us from from our sin from our slavery to the things of this world and you have set us free and father we want to respond to you in the way that you deserve because you are worthy and you are the one to whom all our praise is due thank you for your word Please teach us and help us to understand you more and help us to implement this in our lives each day. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.